Support for this podcast comes from Outdoor Supply Hardware, inviting listeners to OSHA's big anniversary sale celebration, May 20th through the 26th, featuring daily deals, $15,000 in giveaways, 20% off store-wide on Saturday and Sunday, and a lot more. Learn more at OSH.com. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Two of the huge refineries that sit on the northern bayshore of Contra Costa County are in the middle of a process to move away from using fossil fuels. Instead of taking crude oil, cracking it into its hydrocarbon pieces, and transforming it into petroleum products like gasoline, these facilities will use vegetable oils to create renewable diesel. The plans are big, the largest in the nation, and they seem to align with the goals that California's 2006 landmark climate legislation, AB32, laid out. But is increasing biofuel production at local refineries still the way to go in 2022? That's all coming up next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Refineries are massive, expensive, complex machines that produce the transportation fuels that just about everyone still uses. They also have serious local environmental effects, as many of the East Bay residents who live near the refinery complexes up there have attested. As fossil fuel use declines, and it must, Bay residents living near refineries might have hoped that they'd go dark, their useful lifespan complete. Now, though, two of those refineries have created plans to process renewable feedstocks, not only massively increasing the amount of renewable diesel produced in California, but also extending the lifespan of that local infrastructure. That's spurred in part by California climate legislation, but not all environmental groups agree that this is a big win for air quality or a long-term solution to global warming. Here to discuss first, we're joined by Rajinder Sahota, Deputy Executive Officer of Climate Change and Research at the California Air Resources Board. Thank you so much for joining us, Rajinder. Good morning. Thanks for the invitation to be here. So first things first, I kind of want to get to the pro case, like why the refineries should do this first. Um, From your perspective, what are the benefits of switching to these renewable feedstocks? Well, the renewable feedstocks have a much lower carbon intensity than traditional petroleum fuels, which means that they emit less carbon into the atmosphere, which is really good from a climate perspective. They also have less PM emissions, which are cancer-causing pollutant that causes all sorts of cancer and other health issues as that fuel is combusted in trucks and other vehicles that move up and down the state. And so there are both air quality benefits and climate benefits of moving away from the production and use of petroleum fuels to renewable diesel. So is that true for all feedstocks or just certain of these renewable feedstocks? Like we know the profile is kind of different if it's like virgin palm oil versus like recycled vegetable oil or something like that. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think the key here is that the way that we score the carbon intensity, which is how much carbon and how beneficial they are from a climate perspective, really matters. And the way that we do that in some of the state programs is that we have complex models that think about land conversion. They think about what goes into growing those crops and they and they include an allocation for how that material is moved to a processing plant and then the energy used of that processing plant. 
And so different feedstocks that are produced in different parts of the U.S. or using different um, inputs like vegetable oils or other oils, those are going to have different carbon intensities. I will say that we do not support any kinds of feedstocks that are purposely grown, such as palm, that are meant to convert uh, forests or other kinds of lands to produce uh, renewable diesel. So there are some protections already built in because if you're converting that land, you're losing carbon and you don't get a good benefit from that from a climate perspective. Let's say that this proposal goes through, you know, it's kind of going through all the different steps. These are long processes. Um, Once they've got the permits to be up and running, do you have any control over what gets fed into the refinery? We do. So the reason that we see this movement by the refineries is in response to state policy. We have a program called the Low Carbon Fuel Standard, which is about diversifying and moving away from petroleum fuels in the transportation sector. And the way that the accounting works in that program, these fuels will continue to be pressured to be less carbon intensive intensive over time. And so there's a built-in mechanism in that program that warrants there to be less carbon from the production, transport, and use of these fuels. And so over the long term, not only are we getting off petroleum, but we're also actually moving to a less carbon intensive fuel, even if they converted today to biofuels or renewable diesel, they have to keep getting cleaner over time. So let's talk about why it might be that renewable diesel is an important thing to produce, because you know, many people, I think, hear about the transportation fuels and they think, well, aren't we all just going to electric vehicles? That is another excellent question. We are in the process at the state of updating our climate plan, which is to make sure that we're on track to hit the 2030 target of 40% below 1990 levels of GHGs, and then also think about carbon neutrality no later than 2045. And our modeling shows that even with the implementation of Governor Newsom's executive order to turn over the fleets, there will still be legacy vehicles. There'll be still, there still will be some applications where you cannot electrify. That technology simply doesn't exist today. And as we move forward in time, we may see that technology come online and we may be able to move to it in all applications, but that is not the case today. And when we think about applications like aviation, locomotives and marine, and the legacy fleets of heavy and medium duty, those are going to persist into the mid-century. That is what our modeling shows. I mean, it does seem like one of the issues here is is trying to match up these incredibly complex timelines. We're trying to drive to carbon neutrality by 2045. Some people would probably say should be a little earlier. And there are also these massive investments that are going into these refineries, which would keep them operating for, you know, let's say a, a couple of decades. Do you think that these refineries and California's climate goals are actually like their timelines are aligned well enough for you to really support what they're doing? Well, they are aligned in the fact that we all want to get to the same future where we have no combustion of any fuels in the state of California, but we are in a period of transition and all it needs to depend on both the production of clean fuels and the availability of clean technology. Until those two pieces sync up, we are going to be in this period of transition where we will have both um, traditional vehicles that have combustion that need lower carbon fuels to continue And we will be trying to push the deployment of the cleaner, zero combustion electric vehicles or fuel cell vehicles that we want to see on the roads. I think the challenge here is what does this transition look like until we get to that optimal goal of no combustion of any fuels? And will the technology be there? And if we decide to shut down these 
these facilities and we don't build for the energy sources we're going to need, then we're going to lose support from civil society. We're going to see implications for our economy. We're going to see implications politically. And so that smooth transition really, really matters if we are to do it in a way that not only doesn't impact consumers and the economy in California and workers in California, but it also matters in terms of the exportability of these programs to other regions, because we need other people to reduce emissions for climate change. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can we talk about the scale of these two refinery projects in uh, Rodeo and in Martinez, Rodeo owned by uh, Phillips and Marathon uh, owning uh, Martinez, yeah, owning Martinez. You know, how big is this in the sort of state and national renewable diesel picture, these these uh, refinery conversions? It, it is it is precedent setting in the fact that we are seeing that we can work with a traditional fossil industry and then get them to the viewpoint that maybe they can abandon that petroleum um, production that they've done and actually transition those assets to produce the clean fuels that we wanna see as we move forward. So not only is that responsive to policies that we put in place over 15 years ago here at the state, but it sets an example for conversations at the national level that it's not just about turning things off, it's about transitioning and creating opportunities for some of these existing assets, these companies to be part of that clean energy future. And so it does matter in that context. Yeah. Do you worry that, you know, by one bank estimate, you know, demand for renewable fuels is going to grow 800 percent, in large part driven by California policy? Do you worry that there will be unintended consequences in the food world as you sort of pull more and more uh, vegetable oil into uh, producing for transportation fuel? That is absolutely one of the things. And like I mentioned earlier, deforestation that we have always monitored for and continue to monitor for, monitor for in our low carbon fuel standard program, because that is the driver, the incentive to actually produce these fuels. We started a public process last year where we solicited information and data and anything from stakeholders to help us figure out if there are unintended consequences that warrant additional protections or additional changes in our program. So we have begun the process to look at this issue again. These same concerns about crops for fuel versus food came up 15 years ago when we first started the program. You know, it's something that we have to continue to monitor for, and we want to absolutely make sure that we don't have any unintended consequences. And so we want to make sure that if there's data, if there's literature, if there's evidence that this is happening, that the conversation happened in our our process here at ARB at the state and that we build in the right protections um, for this program as it moves forward. But I mean, weren't there real problems with biofuels uh, 15 years ago in, in terms of switching, you know, creating creating shocks in the food system? Our program didn't really exist 15 years ago. Our program came into effect in 2010 in California. Mm-hmm. And I think there were some issues raised by the renewable uh, fuel standard at the right. federal level, but it is slightly different than our program. And so we have not seen the same issues in our program that they had in theirs. And we do use different accounting methods here at the state program. Um, the upshot on the emissions level, I think Marathon says its converted Martinez plant would cut greenhouse gas emissions at the refinery by 60% and other pollutants by 70%. Phillips 66 says 60% other pollu- uh, 60% emissions and 50% other pollutants. Um, does that match up with what you're expecting to see out of this and why you see this as an environmental win? 
So we, we have not seen the specific data here at the state. They've announced these plans, but until they actually have more details and submit those plans to the state in terms of what the carbon intensity would be for the fuels, we don't have direct insight into those numbers. I know that as part of their environmental impact reports, they have reported on these pieces and that's, that's a good thing. If they're gonna go to a smaller footprint, which is what I believe is the case here, then that is a really good thing to see happen. Um, I think from the perspective of, is this better than the status quo and the status quo being a continued reliance on fossil fuels, continued emissions of fossil fuels and the larger footprint, it is a win. And we simply, we simply can't just turn off the things we don't like. We have to build the things that we do like and do wanna see happen. If we don't allow the things to be built that we wanna see for clean energy and distribution, then status quo will persist because we won't transition to nothing. We need to transition to something. We're talking about the big plans to convert Bay Area refineries to biofuel production. We've been talking with Rajinder Sahota, Deputy Executive Officer of Climate Change and Research at the California Air Resources Board. We're going to be joined by a couple other experts after the break, and we'd love to hear from you. Are you a neighbor of one of these refineries in Martinez uh, or up there along the northern shore of the East Bay? What do you think of the plan to switch to biofuels? Do you think that refineries overall have been a benefit or detriment to your community. You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, it's KQED Forum. And the email is forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned for more on these refineries. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the big, really quite huge plans to convert Bay Area refineries to biofuel production with Rajinder Sahota, Deputy Executive Officer of Climate Change and Research at the California Air Resources Board. We want to add a couple more voices to the conversation. Michael War is the director of the Climate and Energy Policy Program at Stanford University's Woods Institute for the Environment. Thanks for joining us, Michael. Thanks for having me on. We're also joined by Connie Cho, attorney for Citizens for a Better environment. Thanks for uh, coming on, Connie. Good morning. Thank you for the invitation. So, Connie, I imagine that you agree with the overall policy goals of the state of California, reduce emissions, get to you know climate neutrality as soon as possible, and, and things like that. How do you feel about this specific plan, though, around the refineries in the Bay Area? Yeah, there's absolutely no disagreement that we need to be moving um, 
to a zero emission or a lower carbon world as soon as possible, I think that there's a disagreement about the way that we need to go about that transition. Um, we're running out of time to take massive climate action, and we don't really have time anymore to make little tweaks to our existing transportation system and see if big oil is really going to be nice, uh, playing nice uh, to solve the problem that they created. Um, and these biofuel conversions are um, a, a prime example of, of that. How do you see, say, heavy trucking or some of the agricultural uh, needs for fuel? You think we could get to electrification like somewhat immediately uh, or or so you see no need for a bridge fuel like this renewable diesel? Well, so, you know, what um, Rajinder mentioned before, aviation locomotives, marines or planes, trains and ships um, are something like three point, you know, like three to four percent of total GHG emissions. You know, that's not really what we're looking at. Um, we're thinking about the, you know, passenger vehicles, like you said, medium, heavy duty trucks. Um, there are ways to electrify those. Um, that technology does exist. Um, and the. I think the real I think the real question is about um, what what are we not doing because we are supporting these projects, right? Um, so, you know, when it comes to uh, th these California refineries were in financial decline even prior to the pandemic. So, what's really happening is that these projects are a delay tactic for real transition for refinery communities. And it's not an exaggeration to say that it's an absolutely deadly distraction. Um, right now, the Marathon Petroleum Refinery that you mentioned in Martinez is actually shut down. Um, and there's been no real planning for the process of decommissioning and closing these refineries, which is just a massive problem um, and you know, uh, an environmental disaster waiting to be discovered. Yeah. Michael Wara, one question I have about this, there's many, but one question I have is why refineries would not be profitable. I get it that right, after, right as the pandemic was happening, as demand for gasoline and other petroleum products collapsed, that might not have worked. But you look at gas prices now, you look at diesel prices, and you say, you look at what's going on in Ukraine, you say, how, how would it be that these would not be profitable just sort of doing regular old fossil fuel stuff? Well, I think the answer is, has to do with the dynamics of fuel consumption in California. Uh, part of that has to do with the success of the low-carbon fuel standard and driving biofuels into the liquid fuels market. And the other piece of it is electrification. Refineries are low-margin businesses. Even a small decline in demand is going to put real strain on the industry. And that probably means individual refineries, the, the, the marginal ones, thinking about shutting down or some kind of a conversion like the, uh, the proposals we're seeing today. Yeah. Rajendra Sota, what do, you, what do you say to the idea that this is just a delay tactic? It's not a transition tactic, it's a delay tactic. Well, I think we, like, like Connie suggested, we do want to see a world where we're out of combustion but the path to that world is going to happen over the next 20, 25 years. And our modeling shows that we are going to need some of these fuels. And if there are any challenges, legal challenges to some of our authorities to set standards for uh, GHGs or any challenges to our programs or a lack of funding to deploy EV trucks and help people get into those technologies, we're going to need these fuels. And so there is a need to not just um, turn the things off, but actually deliberately think through 
what do we need to ensure that there is sufficient energy and cleaner energy as we transition to what we all want um, before mid-century? And to us, it's not a delay tactic. It's actually being responsive to a state-level program that wanted assets like this, these kinds of refineries, to stop producing and processing petroleum products and producing cleaner fuels. We've got some callers coming in. I want to get to one uh, for you, Rajinder, before you've got to go. Uh, Holly from San Francisco, welcome to the show. Great. Thank you for this program. Yes, um, you had mentioned transparency before regarding the low-carbon fuel standard so that the citizens of California can know where the fuel comes from and what the carbon intensity of it is. So I wanted to know what California is doing about transparency in fuel sources. California is the largest importer of crude oil from the Amazon rainforest. 50% of all Amazon crude comes to California, mostly from Ecuador. And Ecuador is about to open up 7 million acres of intact rainforest this September for new oil drilling permits. So is, are one of the agencies in California like CARB paying attention and publishing information on where our crude comes from and where it's going, what it's made into? And if not, what can we do to ensure that transparency so that we are not complicit in further destruction of rainforests, which is counter to our climate goals? Holly, thanks so much for that. I want to just extend that question to transparency on where the fossil or renewable feedstocks would come from. Like how much transparency can Americans expect? And would CARB be the place, the Air Resources Board, be the place that would provide that transparency? Um, That is a really great question. And I think for consumers to be informed of where their energy is coming from is really important because then those of us that are able to make decisions and have the resources to pick and choose what resources we want to use in terms of energy or buy an EV versus a gasoline vehicle, we have that information at hand. And yes, CARB does publish all of that information on its website. It is updated every year. The Energy Commission, the California Energy Commission, also has extensive reports about our fuel mix, the feedstocks, and petroleum. I will say that when we talk about petroleum, which is the the crude oils, the fossil fuels, those are getting a penalty under our low carbon fuel standard. They do not receive credits for producing and bringing that into the economy. They are producing deficits, which means that they have to either clean themselves up or they have to buy um, credits from clean fuel providers. And hence, you're actually supporting a clean fuel transition across the economy. Um, So all of that transparency and information does exist. It's important to have that out there. But I think this also goes back to a comment that Michael Warren made about demand. The biggest way that we can impact our dependence here on petroleum is to decide whether or not we're going to move to mass transit or invest in EVs or fuel cell vehicles, or we're going to look at other mobility options so that we ourselves as an economy are not demanding that those um, extractive activities occur, whether it's here in California or elsewhere to meet our ongoing wants. Connie Cho, uh, attorney for Citizens for a Better Environment, do you see a possibility of compromise on these conversion plants here, or are you like, no, shut them down? That's that's the position. Well, you know, I think we're not even at a place where we can ask that question because there hasn't been a, a sufficient environmental impact review. You know, the county 
has really treated these projects like there's some cookie cutter, you know, permit um, that they need to dole out. But these are, you know, as um, was said before, these are unprecedented projects. Um, and, you know, also, as said before, you know, the, the kind of feedstocks that um, are going to be used in process really, really matter when it comes to looking at the GHG emissions and looking at the pollution and emissions profile. Um, and we know that biofuels are also more hydrogen intensive in their processing. And so, you know, hydrogen, you know, that means that there's going to be more safety concerns. There are also going to be more flaring concerns, um, which, you know, refineries communities um, have to deal with all the time. Um, so, you know, it, it would be really nice to have, you know, just a really basic uh, sufficient environmental review to be able to, you know, make some of these uh, decisions off of. Um, Connie Cho, I mean, I'm, I got the EIRs right here. I mean, they're like, they're either each like 600 pages, which all, all the things like this are. What's not in there that you want to see in there? It's, it's, is it about a broader set of calculations about where the feedstocks would be coming from and a, a broader set of possible outcomes as a result of that? Is that what's missing? Right. So, you know, um, I think industry uh, is really hiding behind uh, saying, well, we don't know exactly how much uh, <laughs> if each feedstock we're going to be using. But, you know, there are pretty obvious market trends to show that they're going to be using at least a lot of soy. And in particular, um, soybean oil uh, has been linked in, you know, the, over the past decade, we have a lot of evidence to show that this is really linked to the exact deforestation and palm oil concerns um, that have been coming up and that the low carbon fuel standard is currently trying to protect against. But that really needs to be, that program really needs to be updated. And while it needs to be updated, these projects, um, it's really the county that has sort of the, is the last line of defense on looking at these projects to see whether or not they're actually going to be making the net climate impact that um, they're purporting to do. Uh, Rajinder Sota, Deputy Executive Officer of Climate Change and Research at the California Air Resources Board, wanted to give you one uh, chance to, to respond. You've been listening to the conversation and the questions uh, coming from Connie Cho and Michael Wara. Um, what would you say is your sort of final statement about uh, why these projects are a, a good thing or could be a good thing? Well, there was a recognition in Governor Newsom's executive order for moving away from petroleum and pushing out more technology that's combustion free, that we need to think about not only building for the energy future that we want, but repurposing the assets that we have today. And like Connie said, we are out of time. We can't just turn everything off and then build an entire new system of energy in the time frame that we have to avoid the worst impacts of climate change. And so this period of transition is going to have us looking at those existing assets. And it's going to have us thinking about, you know, from a bigger picture, if we truly want to get off petroleum, what is the energy that we will have to build for and produce um, to do that successfully and smoothly so that we don't lose public and political support on acting on climate? Thanks so much, Rajinder Sohota, Deputy Executive Officer of Climate Change and Research at CARB, the Air Resources Board here in California. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for the opportunity to share in this important conversation. Goodbye. Uh, Michael War, wanted to ask you about some of the similarities that I see in this particular situation and what we've seen with natural gas, right? The same idea that we need a kind of bridge fuel, right? How do you, how has that played out in this sort of broader energy context? And do you see that same similarity here? Well, I think 
We're definitely seeing changes in the vision for how we use the natural gas infrastructure that we have and, and whether we need all of it or some of it or and which parts of it. And I think we're getting to the point with our refinery infrastructure in California, which we have a very large refinery complex in California to support our domestic needs. But we're, we're getting to the point where I think we need some systematic planning about how much of that infrastructure we're going to need as we manage the energy transition. I completely agree with uh, Rajinder Sahota's point that we need to keep the lights on and we need to make sure that if people have cars that they need to get their kids to school and get to work in, that they have fuel that's available for those vehicles. Um, but it's clear, and this is, the ARB is very clear on this, that in the medium term, we are moving toward an electrified road transport. Um, and so I think it, th what's challenging about this project, these projects is that they're being proposed at a time before we've done that systematic think. And they certainly do have potential uh, negative environmental ramifications. And they involve, you know, the continued existence of facilities that are were cited in, you know, neighborhoods long ago under conditions of structural racism. Mm -hmm. And so I think what's really urgent is a systematic think at the state level about how our biofuels mandates relate to our plans, our newer plans for vehicle electrification, and what the implications of that are for all of the refineries in California so that we can make sensible decisions um, that make sense for the communities and also for the state. Let's bring in uh, Tyson from uh, Rodeo. Welcome. Yeah, hi, guys. Thank you for the opportunity. Can you hear me? Yeah, sure can. Go ahead. Hey, so my name is Tyson Bagley, and I'm, I'm currently a union uh, oil and gas worker right now at actually one of the five Bay Area refineries. And I just have a question for the guests and the experts on there is, what about the workers? What are we going to do? And, 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 and can you show us another project that offers the same type of living wage career heritage jobs currently that these facilities employ thousands of union workers with that opportunity? It's a good question. Uh, Michael Warr, why don't you take this one? Sure. I, I think this is an incredibly important question to address. And it's one, again, where systematic state-level planning is really necessary. There have been some you know, intriguing suggestions about the potential for green hydrogen as a place where some of these workers um, might have a long-term future. But I also think that, you know, there is also a real question about how much of the pipeline infrastructure that we currently have and that is maintained by unionized workers that, that earn good, good living wages, you know, how much of that infrastructure we're going to need. But separately also, I think it's important to keep in mind that these facilities, um, particularly in the Bay Area, utilize a lot of land that might be repurposed in the future. I'm an old enough native San Franciscan to remember the times when the Mission Bay neighborhood was a rail yard and it took 30 years. And now we have, you know, a neighborhood and multiple stadiums and a university complex, all of which creates enormous numbers of jobs. So I think it's a, it's, this is a, incredibly important conversation. It's a part of making the transition fair. And we need to really engage in that conversation at the state level, um, both politically and at the Air Resources Board. 
Hey, Tyson, I really appreciate uh, you bringing that perspective. Uh, a lot of people have been employed for a, a lot of time up there. Connie Cho, I imagine that you have a slightly different answer for for employment of sort of fossil fuel workers now. Uh, maybe it's a surprise, but I, I don't really, actually. I am 100% in favor of making sure that workers in the oil and gas industry you know, are able to transition into new high-wage union jobs. Um, I think those protections, you know, unions are raising the floor for everyone. And um, this is an essential part of dealing with climate change. Um, you know, the union workers right now at Chevron, the Chevron refinery, for example, um, are um, on strike. And, you know, we, you know, when there are experienced union workers inside these facilities, it keeps our communities safe. Um, and so that uh, uh, I hope that we will have more collaboration uh, with unions going forward. I do know of and um, really um, impressed with the um, California uh, climate jobs plan that um, I think, you know, maybe 20 unions um, came together to um, work on um, and, you know, it outlines, you know, jobs in solar, wind, renewable energy, energy efficiency, public transit, roads and bridges, schools, you know, thinking more about, you know, the broader economy and what kind of economic development we need um, overall, you know. Uh, broadband, you know, new infrastructure, everything has to be greened, right? Um, so land restoration, environmental remediation, agricultural practices, you know, all have to be changed. So, um, you know, I, I definitely see a future where we, you know, we should be in alignment and and be able to work together. So, you know, there's some initial efforts now to um, work on to, that. Yeah. Yeah. To come together as a coalition. Yeah. We're talking about the huge plans to convert Bay Area refineries to biofuel production. We're talking with Connie Cho, attorney for Communities for a Better Environment. Michael Wara, director of the Climate and Energy Policy Program at Stanford University's Woods Institute for the Environment. And earlier, if you heard her, we were joined by Rajinder Sahota of the California Air Resources Board. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned for more after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the plans to convert Bay Area refineries to biofuel production. Want to get to a, a listener comment here and throw this one to you, Mike Wara of Stanford. A listener writes, I am all in favor of electrification of just about everything. However, I fear being reliant on PG&E or other for-profit power utilities to provide power. People need more direct control and regulation over public utilities, fuel sources, and rates. We're also dependent on unreliable foreign countries for scarce commodities to make batteries 
and solar panels. And what I love about this question, Michael, is that it gets to the broader systems. Like there's going to be trade-offs no matter sort of where we go in the energy system. I think that's exactly the right way to think about this. And and the question is thinking about the current trade-offs we have to make today, given our energy system that we have today, which is global in scope, right? We're seeing that in terms of the impacts of the Ukraine war on both our oil prices and our natural gas prices, um, relative to the trade-offs we might make in a future energy system where energy is still abundant like it is today, but it's produced using renewable resources. And certainly, we need to be paying a lot of attention about creating um, what folks like to call a circular economy for batteries, where the batteries in our vehicles are recycled at the end of life um, rather than being landfilled with all of the precious metals that are in them. And we also need to be thinking hard about our growing strategic dependence on other unstable countries, not the ones we've relied on for oil, but other countries for things like lithium, cobalt, you know, these these trace metals that, that are incredibly important for the renewables economy. And that also oftentimes are in unstable parts of the world and have a, a lot of the issues with supply chains and, and mining that we've seen for years. And Absolutely. Years. And very concentrated parts of the world. This is the other thing that's a little bit different, actually, than fossil fuels. Fossil fuels come from you know, plants from millions of years ago and plankton from millions of years ago, whereas these minerals tend to occur in very specific places. And just as there, you know, there's something called the resource curse where you, you give you know, lots of fossil fuels. If a country is endowed with lots of fossil fuels, it tends to have poor governance as a result. And I think a similar outcome is possible and maybe even likely for some of these countries with you know, unexpected or, or, or you know, abundance, natural abundance of these, these very precious um, elements yeah. that are becoming central to the energy transition. Yeah. Let's bring in Bob from the Sacramento area. Welcome, Bob. Yes, thank you. Um, and at full disclosure, I, I do work um, it, within the the industry ranks. But I, um, you know, I, I really like the the comment about not just you know getting away from projects that people don't like, but building um, what we do. And and there's been a lot of um, talk about some very ambitious climate goals in California and. And that's occurred over the last 20 years, dating back to, you know, um, the previous governor, Jerry Brown, as well as Governor Schwarzenegger. Um, and we set these goals and these projects, um, you know, for, for many years. And in the East Bay, you actually have projects that are helping produce lower greenhouse gas emissions that California uh, wants. So, I mean, isn't this immediate progress toward those goals? Is that is that what we're hearing? I mean, these are yeah. these are helpful Bob, it's a really, it's really interesting. I mean, from from my perspective too, that one of the things that has really changed is the way that the oil and gas companies are talking about this. Um, you know, one of the managers of the project there in Rodeo says it's a great way to reduce carbon emissions right away as the state moves toward electrification. I'm not sure there's ever been a time when you had oil and gas people saying stuff like that. And it's it, Connie Char. I want to I want to toss this one to you because. It does seem like there is this sort of, do we take this immediate emissions reduction now, but possibly extend the amount of time that these emissions are produced in these particular places as a result? Like that, that's, it's a trade-off and it seems like a a difficult one for you. 
Right. Absolutely. There's also one particular, I, I keep coming back to soy, but <laughs> you know, the evidence really doesn't show that soybean oil is necessarily a net climate benefit for us because of the way it's linked to deforestation and linked to the palm oil market in particular. And actually the EU is going about, you know, doing this sort of um, revision of its own policy based on these risk factors of whether or not they're actually going to be leading to net climate benefits once you take into, you know, the, the complexity of the land use uh, changes that, you know, the low carbon fuel standard currently addresses some of, but not all of, um, in, uh, in short. And so uh, if, if we're looking at soy and the amount of soy, um, which I think Belgium has already banned, right? If we're looking at this amount of soy and we're not looking to put any controls on that or any caps on that, you know, then it, then it just seems like we're going backwards and <laughs> we're not using the evidence that we know now, um, you know, since the low carbon fuel standard first came into place, um, you know, to, to actually make sure we're going to meet our goals now. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah. You know, I was, I was looking at, uh, I promised the producers that I wouldn't get into life cycle analysis for too long. This is the way that we determine what the carbon intensity of different fuels might be. And of course, these are really complex calculations. They're based on these models that assume certain things or don't assume certain things. And the, the main thing that I would want listeners to take away from this discussion is how much uncertainty there actually is in how carbon intense a fuel is. Like if you look at the current evidence that exists out there, it's very broad. Like the band of like, is this good on a carbon emissions level to is this bad? Seems like wider than you would want it to be. And it has to do with the complexity of producing these uh, biofuels. My, yeah, my, it, oh, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Connie. Oh, I was gonna say, and it has, has to do with the fact that that's a program right? But it really depends on what the exact project that is being proposed is actually doing. And these projects are just burning food using, you know, first generation technology. Um, you know, there's second and third generation technology. There's more advanced technology, but that's, this is the way, this is the cheapest way that a 100 year old crude petroleum refinery can squeeze just a last bit of profit out of what's otherwise an, uh, you know, a stranded and obsolete asset. And you can use up state subsidies and continue to pollute at the same time. Michael War, how do you see this? Well, I, I think your your analysis is exactly right, that there is enormous uncertainty um, that's just inherent. And it has to do with the complexity of global agricultural markets that you can't just assume, you know, if you do one thing over here, that something else unintended isn't going to happen over there. And some of those things may be harmless from a climate perspective, and some of them may have really significant impacts. Um, the I guess I guess you know what I would say is to go back to what um, uh, Miss Sahota's point, and and I think also something that that Miss um, Cho has said is that we need to burn less stuff. I mean, you know, that ultimately our our energy economy is predicated on burning of fossil fuels and our vehicles work that way. And so, you know, the question, the, the hard question is, you know, what kinds of sort of short-term fixes can we make to how we combust fuels as we transition away from a combustion-focused um, economy and towards something that works fundamentally differently? And you know the the low carbon fuel standard the renewable fuel standard to a lesser degree were were created with the idea of moving toward very advanced biofuels mm -hmm. and those have proven to be just much harder 
than was expected and could have been predicted at the time that the rules were put in place. And so we have these alternatives, you know, like renewable diesel, biodiesel. Um, and, you know, the question is how we feel about these kind of less than perfect options mm-hmm. and and how that trades off against the localized impacts, the very real localized impacts of large refinery complexes located adjacent to lots of people living in neighborhoods. Let's bring in uh, Maureen from uh, one of those places. Uh, Rodeo, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, well, I, Connie Cho, uh, I was first going to talk about the soybeans uh, for animal feed because that's the, pretty much what the market is for in the United States soybean market. Um, but I just suggest that just watch the uh, price of uh, pork and beef and you know, your your afternoon barbecue is going to cost a whole lot more, let's say double and triple, because all the soybean, much of the soybean market is being directed towards these new fuels. Um, but, you know, really, biodiesel versus diesel, both burn dirty. Uh, the problem is the diesel technology. Electrification is the main way to go. The state is willing to subsidize to fill up 66, $3.32 per gallon to produce this renewable diesel. The production cost to Phillips 66 runs about $3.32 per uh, per gallon. And so we're we're giving this away. If we want to be combustion-free, which is so important, why not subsidize electric trucks and cars also? Not not for more fuel. Which we do. Uh, but I, I point point taken. Thank you, uh, Maureen, for that. I want to get to uh, another caller from uh, Rodeo. Uh, Janice, welcome. Hi, thank you. My name is Janet. I've been in Rodeo for over 43 years. I just wanted to say Rodeo is a jewel by the bay. And what upset me is that they chose to use the name Rodeo in their Rodeo Renewed. Rodeo doesn't need to have their renewal in our town. Their building says San Francisco Refinery. They are the San Francisco Refinery, not Rodeo. They, we have no hospital. We need to worry about the workers and their health. They're going to have cancer. How many people have cancer? We need the health of the world, number one, over profit. And a lot of the calling in people are being paid to call in. We are not. We are all volunteers. And it's about time everybody listens to the locally impacted. And we can't just move. We have a gorgeous view. It's beautiful. We see the sunset every night. We expected carb and air quality to take care of the people, and they need to put the lives of the people first, and especially our Board of Supervisors, who will be probably voting for this because all they care about is the money, and they need to think about the world as a whole. And I'm glad they're thinking about this. Yeah, but it's, thank yeah, thank if you. If San Francisco knew about this, they'd be all up in terms. They're going to be impacted by all the marine and all the tracks and trains. Thank you, thank you Janet yeah. in Rodeo. I appreciate it. I also love it up there. Thanks so much. Um, the couple couple comments before we go to pledge here. Um, Gary writes, California is exporting refined fuels to foreign markets. Biofuels are not replacing fossil fuels, just more production on top of already existing production. Approximately 30% of all refined fuels in California are exported to foreign markets. We do have another pledge drive, so we're going to send at least some of you over there now. And we're back. 
Um, I wa- Michael Moore, I wanted to ask you about that, uh, Gary, uh, comment, which is about the export of these uh, refined fuels. It kind of ties into that systems thinking that you were describing earlier. This is a global market, and so that is going to happen. We are going to export some of these fuels. Yeah, well, I think this is going to be an increasingly important question about the future of the refinery complex in California, is to what degree do we invest in this infrastructure, knowing that the long-term future, if there is one, is going to have to rely on export. And that that's a very different conversation than we've had to date, where you know we're really thinking about how do we supply the boutique fuel blends that California needs because of our air quality issues. At the point where you know we start to see a decline in the demand in, in California for these liquid fuels, the refineries are going to look to export. And, you know, I think I think it's a it's a much more uh, of a sort of uh, <laughs> I'd say it's it's a mu- it's it's a much more um, complex question in terms of the equities and and what is fair at the point where the um, you know the the issue is refinery profits um, from exporting even low carbon fuels um, as compared to Community impacts um, from the production of those fuels, yeah. and you know we're not there yet, but that is really a, a, a predictable future um, for these facilities if they continue to operate, given the trajectory in the overall California market. And we want to be thinking about that as the state supports um, large-scale investments. And I, you know, these biofuels projects are one thing. Also under consideration is large-scale deployment of carbon capture and storage at mm-hmm. refineries. Um, and we want to be thinking long-term because all of these investments that the companies are making are intended to be long-term investments. And it's important to make sure that we don't push firms to do things with our regulatory mm-hmm. apparatus that aren't actually needed in that long-term. Yeah. Let's bring in George from uh, Walnut Creek. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I just wanted to make a quick point about the uh, transition from fossil fuels to electrification is not void of environmental issues. And I'm thinking globally beyond California, as an example, mining for lithium and cobalt minerals for EV batteries, uh, often in parts of the world where uh, low-cost labor is used. There are environmental impacts of that. So my point is, think globally beyond just California. Think of other uh, impacts of going to uh, uh, tr- the transition, you know, f- to EV. Thanks so much. I'd be interested in your com- Yeah, interested in your comments on that. Yeah, absolutely, uh, Michael Wara. And then I've got one last question for you, uh, Connie Joe. Well, I, I I completely agree. You know, there's there's no free lunch, and if we're going to be the kind of energy abundant economy that we take for granted. And and if billions of people around the world who currently don't have that kind of life are going to have it, there are going to be significant environmental impacts. And I guess what I'd say in response to the comment is we need to be thinking about that now in the energy transition and trying to make sure that our practices and uh, the, the, the precedents we set are better than the ones that were set 100 years ago as the fossil economy developed. And we can do better. We can do better as a country, as a state in California, and we can also do better in terms of our influence globally. And I'm hopeful that we're going to achieve that. I think the 
coalition that supports this energy transition is one where that can be achieved, but it's going to take work and intention. Uh, Catherine writes in to say, it seems to me that both options need to be accelerated, that is, say, biofuels and uh, electrification. Can we get outside of the single solution mindset? We need to take a multifaceted approach to a complex issue. If jet planes and semi-trucks won't ever be able to be electric, it seems this biofuel infrastructure could be essential. So how do we move forward on this track without it resulting in a slower advance to solar and electric for everything else? Connie Cho? That's an excellent question. Um, I one uh, just want to start with the fact that the D the industries that ha- are you know hard to decarbonize um, are really small in terms of the the big picture of what's creating you know the the majority of our climate emissions, right? And so um, planning around those industries um, or those uh, those needs seems maybe uh, a backwards way to do it. So you know, thinking about you know what are the big ticket items that and of course, the environmental justice implications, there's lithium mining happening in Imperial Valley right now. And so um, the environmental justice advocates there are really active in trying to make sure that um, we're going to, um, we're not going to repeat um, the uh, the errors of the past in, um, in terms of how we treat um, communities where there's extraction. Um, but uh, again, you know, these projects in particular are really, uh, really the bottom of the barrel kinds of, you know, first gen biofuels. It's really not the advanced cellulosic, you know, biofuel. And the and, and I think the moral of the story is that, you know, we need community led, worker led transition plans that the state is doing, as Michael, uh, as, yeah. you know, Professor Horace said, systems thinking around. Otherwise, we're just going to end up with a bankruptcy, which no pen, you know, means no pensions for workers yeah. and a giant cleanup bill for taxpayers. We've been talking about big plans to convert Bay Area refiners to biofuel production with Connie Cho, an attorney with Communities for a Better Environment. Michael Wara, director of the Climate and Energy Policy Program at Stanford University's Woods Institute for the Environment. And earlier, we spoke with Virginia Serhota, deputy executive officer of Climate Change and Research at California Air Resources Board. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles? The Snap Judgment Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them. 
with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.